You should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull****. It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome. Welcome to Tuesday. <laughs> it is the middle of May. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. And uh, Tuesdays are fine and awesome because John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. Hello, John. Hello, Michelle. Hello, everybody out in Radio Land. I woke up today praying to the universe. Dear universe, it is only Tuesday. <laughs> My hair's falling out. There's a lot going on. Um, I've mentioned it before, you know, here on the program uh, that uh, that I I do stuff with San Francisco Pride, and so we've got a month and a half left until the big celebration. Make sure you come out if you are planning to celebrate Pride. Come out to San Francisco. It is June 25th and 26th. We're more than happy to have you. There's some great stuff coming up. I hope if I make it. <laughs> but it will be the reason why I actually need to excuse myself from the program and very thankful that John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is going to host today's show. So before we get started, I'd like to say that today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And so, John, are you ready to take the show away? or I'm ready. All right. Thank you, Michelle. This. I'll try not to break it. <laughs> well, listen, today we've got some very uh, interesting guests and on, on really a connected topic, and that is the role of uh, religion and faith in people's lives, um, and certainly as it connects with the LGBTQ audiences. And our first guest is a San Francisco-based writer and LGBTQ activist named Lila Ibrahim. Uh, joining us on the phone, Lila, are you there? I am. Well, hello. Hi, Thank you so much. Me. Thank you for being, on, being with us today. So I wanted to talk to you, of course, about your book, Living Right. It's a novel, and, and as well as all the issues that kind of are connected to this. But could you start with, because I always love hearing this from writers, what went into coming up with this book, and, and why did you do it, you know, approach it the way you did and focus it the way you did? This particular book. So um, it is an interesting question, the muse, right? Why do certain things come to you that you feel compelled to write? My, my first novel is set on a plantation before the Civil War, and it's the story of the daughter plantation owner and her relationship with her caregiver, who's an enslaved woman. So my second novel, Living Right, is set in 2004 in Dublin, California. So it's very different. Uh, on the surface, it looks like a very different novel. Sure. But when you dig underneath, they're both novels about loving across the difference that society has taught you. You aren't supposed to love across, and it's in your very own family. So how I thought of living right is I was at a uh, marriage uh, equality protest one time or demonstration in San Francisco, and I saw a group of what looked to me like evangelical Christian teenagers standing up for their values, and I was like, wow, they probably think they're here to save the hearts and minds and souls of children or teenagers 
and so am I. That's why I'm here. Right. So I just thought, wow, what a huge difference in our understanding of what we need to do to have um, God's love on earth. And, and I had a moment where I thought, God, I wish I could hand them a flyer saying, do you know you might be condemning your own friends, your cousin, your niece, your nephew? And I didn't. But that always stuck with me. And so I think that was kind of the, the very nugget of why I wanted to write Living Right, to imagine what it would be like for that group of people to face this issue in their very own family. Um, well, so, and when did you actually start writing this book? No, I should note, your first book, that was Yellow Crocus, right? Yes, yeah. So Yellow Crocus was one of those things, it was just kind of out of the blue. I thought of this story, and the story haunted me for like seven years. And I was like, I'm not going to write a novel, this is ridiculous. Um, but for my 40th birthday, I was like, I'm going to try writing a novel. Uh-huh. So, And I ended up self-publishing it, because the main message I got from people was, great story, great writing, but nobody actually wants to read this story. And I thought, wow, I just... I'm only doing this because of this particular story. So I ended up self-publishing Yellow Crocus, and then it got picked up by a publisher a couple years later. And right as I was getting picked up by that other publisher, I started writing Living Right. So that was in, like, January or February of 2014. So it's been about two years. And interestingly enough, I got the same kind of message. So my publisher said to me, it's too Christian for gays, it's too gay for Christians, there isn't a market for this. And you need to stick with, you know, historical fiction that's set in the 1800s. But <laughs> that, that'll be your I, niche from now on, right? Yeah, like, you know, and, and the idea that, that, yeah, people don't read different kinds of books. I mean, I'm sure there are people that stick with a very narrow um, uh you know, they like to read things that are very narrow, right. or very similar to each other. But I'm someone who reads science fiction, I read young adult novels, I read historical fiction, I read family fiction, I read all sorts of things as well as nonfiction. Mm-hmm. So I just had faith that there would be people for whom this is an important book. And that is the feedback that I'm getting. I mean, it hasn't been out very long. Um, but I'm getting feedback from evangelical Christians. I'm getting feedback from former evangelical Christians. I'm getting feedback from liberal religious people, from LGBT people, who are telling me that I, I wrote a story that, that resonates for them and helps them have understanding for people across a very, what, what feels like an insurmountable difference. Sure. Well, let's get into that, both in the book and, and what you're hearing from people. Uh, uh, you know, what 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 is the core hurdle, I guess, that, that uh, folks in, in, in uh, you know, especially religious backgrounds are dealing with? And how, how do they either get over that hurdle or, you know, end up in a, in a really bad way by not getting over that hurdle, you know, you know in, in accepting or, or uh, uh, reconciling sometimes what seem to be, uh, you know, opposite viewpoints? Yeah, I think, well, I'm a very religious person myself. Um, I'm a Unitarian Universalist, so it's a very different path than if I had been um, a Christian in almost any form. Mm -hmm. But when I actually came into Unitarian Universalism was in the 1980s, and that was just as Unitarian Universalism was really coming forward and embracing LGBT issues. And, And so being a part of this religious community made my coming out so much easier. And I got married in our church in 1991, and I met my wife in our church, and our children were raised in our church. And for me, my religious community was a sanctuary that helped me 
feel good about myself and my life choices and who I want to be in the world and help me live out more a more proud life. Um, sadly, that is not the case for very many people in terms of their religious life. Um, for many people, what they're hearing, particularly in the um, 90s and 2000s in their religious communities is is that they're going to go to hell yeah. if they're gay, and um, and basically that they're an abomination and that it's their fault, and it's their fault and it's their parents' fault. So I, I don't I don't do a I don't do a full examination of conversion therapy, but in this book, when the family learns that their son has what they call same sex attractions, um, their minister tells them, "Oh, it's totally treatable." And they go and they listen and they get spiritual counseling from their minister. And what they learn is the parent's fault is that their child has an insecure attachment and their child has been sexually abused and that their child doesn't have a good prayer life because if they just ask right, God would take this away. So it suddenly becomes the family's fault Mm -hmm. that their child is going to go to hell. And there's, you know, what a horrible, horrible message. So before I wrote the novel, I felt like conversion therapy was something that was done to teenagers by their parents. And after doing more research and reading about it, I realized that it was being done to these families by their religious leaders. Yeah, it, it, it's taking folks who have a very specific view of, of something that uh, being a sin and then saying not only is it this person's sin, it's the family's sin. And, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. And what I find interesting is there are, it looks to me like there are two different branches to the people giving this message. Mm-hmm. So there's the one branch that were, the people that were involved in the um, ex-gay movement and the conversion therapy movement through Exodus as well as other programs right. are mostly themselves gay men and lesbian women who, who believe this this thing that's been told to them. Mm-hmm. And so they are going forward and they are testifying that they've been quote unquote cured for decades. Mm-hmm. Well, knowing in their hearts they haven't been, but the, the whole system is saying, if you have faith, this will be taken away from you. And so they're proclaiming faith. They're proclaiming that they've been cured quote unquote. Right. And it's not true. So they're lying to themselves. And then the other group that's involved in this are people who, who are just kind of self-righteous about the fact that they don't have same-sex attraction. They're not going, oh, well, I wasn't born that way. They're saying, you were, they aren't even saying you were born that way. They're just saying, it's easy not to be gay, so why aren't you doing this? <laughs> like, well, yeah, it's easy for you to say, because you're not. <laughs> yeah, that's like me saying, I can, I can resist the temptation of golf. Well, I've never been interested in golf. Um, exactly. Exactly, yeah. And they pick one thing in the Old Testament. It's not anywhere in the New Testament. It's all in the Old Testament. So many Old Testament rules have been thrown out. Mm -hmm. Why are they picking that one? And, you know, in my book, I I, I have one grandmother say, I I blame Anita Bryant. And Anita Bryant started this whole thing. (laughs) So who knows why this became a thing, but it did become the thing. Yeah, there there are some folks who, who argue that it basically was pulled up in the 70s by, you know, the, basically the new right, at, along with, you know, abortion and some other issues, and basically said, this is what we can, you know, run a movement on. Um, yes. This will separate us from uh, out, and it's, this will, you know, keep people connected, because you basically have a problem, in quotes, a problem yes. that 
will always be there. You're always going to have gays and lesbians, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, can, can I... a problem that will hurt your family. Like, this is to protect your family. Yeah. Um, which is just, of course, that's all unraveling right now, and I think the evangelical Christians are really, really struggling with this as children and teenagers and young adults are like, I'm not going to stay in the closet. But for decades, people did stay in the closet and lived this very uh, heartbreaking life. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk a bit more about that unraveling. I mean, we've, we've seen some uh, major, uh, uh, you know, uh, ex-gay movements kind of recant, or at least leaders in them. Uh, we're seeing lawsuits filed against uh, some of these uh, conversion therapy groups. Um, yeah. organizations, and we're seeing legislation in states like California and I believe some other states that are making conversion therapy, you know, illegal. Um, illegal, at least for people under 18. Adults can okay. make their own choice. Yeah. Yep. So if you're old enough to screw up your own life, that's fine. Um, right, right. <laughs> uh, d- does this make you hopeful about where things are going, or it, is, this, is this also oh, surfacing oh, that yeah. there's a lot of this going on? Um, no, I'm very, very hopeful. Mm-hmm. Um, I am actually stunned by the pace yeah. of civil rights for gays and lesbians. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember when the marriage equality movement started. I mean, as I said, I got married in my church in 1991. Right. But I remember when the marriage equality movement half started, I just kind of rolled my eyes and, you know, sent my $20 a month to HRC and thought, good luck with that. <laughs> And here we are, right? Right, right. You know, like the speed with which my civil rights have been upheld is just amazing. Um, And I think that's part of why I was compelled to write this book, because I think that the disconnect between someone like me, who's just so out and so proud and so confident, and like, you know, I don't understand people for whom this is a difficult thing. Um, There's ways in which I am, I mean, I know that we're on the right side of history. Mm -hmm. And things are, have moved so far into our favor. And, of course, I live in Berkeley, right? I live in the East Bay. I live in San Francisco. You know, so I do live in a bit of a bubble, and I want to acknowledge that. Because yeah. it's super easy for me, but I recognize that it's not easy for other people. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, and, and I think it's easy for other people's reality to be confirmed now. Right. Well, I, th- I think the danger could even can, can be that you, you know, someone in your situation could be, uh, have just as hard of a time understanding the other side as those folks we were talking about before, the straight folks in, in uh, the anti, you know, the, the gay conversion movement who are just like, well, that's not a problem for me. Um, how do you deal with that? I mean, have you had, do you uh, reach out to these two folks on the other side and to learn about, or do you read their, their material? I mean, how do you understand folks who are not living in, you know, Berkeley ground central for, uh, you know, the, the American progressive movement? Right. It is actually part of why I wrote this book because, mm-hmm. Partly what, what I was noticing, and what I noticed is I gave it to friends to read, people who are LGBT or people who were formerly uh, Christian of, of any stripes um, were like, oh my gosh, I completely recognize the situation. Yeah. So even someone like me, whose parents were politically liberal, they were socially liberal, but it was still hard for them in the 80s. And they said these things to me that were really quite hurtful, yeah. and it was very common for people to hear those things in the 19, even in liberal communities, to hear these kind of um, inaccurate assumptions about what it would mean to be LGBT. So in some ways, I am educating straight people that that this is the experience of most of their LGBT friends. 
as they're moving through the world. And for you to think, oh, this is a done deal, or it's so easy to be gay right now, it's like, well, there's still always a bit of a, um, like a filter. Like, Like there's ways in which I am constantly scanning and doing code switching. Right? To, yeah. to take something from the African American community. It's like, I, I try to notice who I'm talking to and use the language that I can, that those people will be able to understand me. Whether it's, you know, whether I'm in Berkeley or whether I'm in Utah or whether I'm in, in Egypt. I have relatives in Egypt, right? <laughs> so it's, complicated. <laughs> okay. Lila, will you, uh, we need to stop for a, a quick break. Uh, and can you stick with us and we'll be right back? Yeah. Great. Thank you. You're listening to the Michelle Meow Show. I'm John Zipper sitting in for the great Michelle Meow. And we will be right back. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.ale. G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Thank you for joining us today. This is the Michelle Meow Show. I'm John Zipper, sitting in for Michelle Meow. Uh, And we are talking today with... Act, uh, excuse me, author and LGBTQ activist Lila Ibrahim. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? My last name is Ibrahim. Ibrahim, excuse me. Thank you. Yeah. Um, right. Let's talk a bit more about your your own personal coming out. You mentioned, you know, during the 80s and, and there were some, you know, your parents had their own kind of preconceptions, even though they were, they were liberals, are liberals, I assume. I don't know if they're still around. Um, but... What was that like, and and how did you come to the point where you uh, decided this was something you're going to let them know about? Yeah, it's been, my parents got divorced when I was like 14, mm-hmm. so I ended up having you know separate relationships with each of them. Mm-hmm. And as I said, I got involved with the church when I was a teenager, and there were at the time there was actually 
a big wave of lesbians who were going through seminary, and I met them, and I didn't realize they were the first. I thought they were just like, oh, yes, this is a church that has lesbians. <laughs> so it just, in my mind, was like, yeah, of course I can be a lesbian. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I told my mom when I was, like, 18 or 19, I didn't tell my dad yet because I knew it would be harder for him, um, she was, in, in a liberal sense, like, oh, that's fine, dear, but in a personal sense, I could tell she was sad and scared and worried for me. Mm-hmm. And even talked about, like, gay people, like there were good gay people. And, like, it's it, just the language I find so offensive when I can look back on it. But I also, as I deconstruct it, realized that she could not imagine my life. She couldn't imagine me actually getting married and having a house and having children, and being out, mm-hmm. and owning my own businesses, right? Because right. that didn't exist. Right. So what she was sad for about me was what was the fact that she didn't think I could have a full life, because there were no examples of people who were out, gay and lesbian people, having full lives. Well, right? that, that was the Reagan so, era, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's not like anything in the 70s or 60s prepared, you know, my mom to think I would have this life. I had a cousin who, I mean, I have a cousin who's gay. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, he lived a very kind of odd, you know, it was just, it wasn't easy for him. It really wasn't. And so I think that the part of her was like, oh, you're going to be like him, and that'll be kind of a sad thing. Um, What's interesting in my novel is that, um, like, uh, Josh is depressed, the young man in the novel is depressed, mm-hmm. and the mom is sure that if, if when God takes away the same-sex attraction, she'll stop being depressed. And she can't see that, oh, he's depressed because you're so upset that he has same-sex attraction, right? <laughs> right. So it becomes this weird cycle of explanation that's the wrong explanation. So that was my mom, um, and but once I got involved with Rinda, and once she could see that we were moving towards a life that she would, you know, be happy for me to have, mm-hmm. then it was super easy for her. She came to my wedding. My stepfather came to our wedding, um, that kind of thing. My father, and my mother had been raised Catholic and was adamantly nothing by the time I was born. My, <laughs> both my parents were adamantly nothing. Okay. My dad is from Egypt, and mm-hmm. he was raised Muslim, um, but he changed his, he, he stopped, you know, believing, quote-unquote, when he was about 12, and isn't someone who has spiritual experiences or what I would call a deep religious life. Whereas my mom is someone who always has spiritual experiences and I'm someone who has a deep connection to the divine. Um, so what's interesting about my dad is both he's from Egypt, and so you know there's double layers of cultural differences. Right. And he was a professor of health, physical education, and recreation, which means I was surrounded by lesbians as a child because there were all these young women that were jocks that were his students. Uh-huh. Um, and he had colleagues, you know, that were with women, that were partners with women. So, but again, they were all in the closet. It wasn't something that people talked about. And I think that is, so he, again, could not imagine that I had the life that I had without him proud that was a secret life. Sure. Um, and it took him a little longer to come around. He did not come to our wedding. And when our, uh, so my wife, Rinda, gave birth to our first child. And he met Kaylin when she was a baby, but he didn't, like, be, like, 
this is my grandchild. Yeah. Um, and then when our second child was born, I was the one who carried her, and she was born at 29 weeks, and I had um, toxemia, and I almost I didn't mm. really almost die, but it's the kind of thing people died from yeah. in the 60s. Um, and so I think that just woke him up. It was like, oh, right. And I had said to him very clearly, you don't get a relationship just with me. You have to have a relationship with my whole family. Right. And it's not that I, I will stop talking to you. I, I will be responsive to whatever you want. But you can't. It's not going to just be me. It has to be. And I think in that moment, it just woke him up. And he was like, that's it. This is my family. And he was great ever since. And so it's funny. My older daughter knows this story. Yeah. She's 23. So she knows this is true in her head because she learned about it when she was older. But as a child, she never felt like my dad and stepmother weren't her grandparents. So your your parents didn't have religious-based problems with this. Um, on your father's side, what do you think it was that kept him from so long, and you know, until the second child and, and your insistence broke him down? I mean, what was he holding on to? Was it a, a just he didn't think you could be happy or kind of like you, you talked yeah. about how, and that is in fact what makes the kids unhappy or did he have something else that he was ideological? Cause I've met atheists who think, you know, homosexuality is unnatural and therefore it should be opposed. Right. Um, I think it was, it wasn't what he imagined for me. Mm-hmm. Right. This concept called gut lag, which is like the thing you think the world should be like, and then it turns out to not be like that, but it can take you a while to catch up. Right. So I think that was hard for him. Um, and I think it was that sense of, like, so he did say to me, like, when he didn't come to our wedding, he said to me, if you were a heroin addict, would you want me to support you? And I'm like, wow. Um, I think he just really thought it would ruin my life. Like, I would have a bad life. Yeah. And that it wouldn't be worth it. I, I think a lot of folks, especially back then and, and even earlier, they kind of had two public views that they could see of, you know, gays and lesbians. Uh, and, you know, mostly it was through the media. Maybe they knew someone, maybe they didn't. But through the media, it was either someone who was miserable and alone or someone who was a wild libertine and, and uh, you know, frankly, most parents don't want that for the kids. So, yeah, I can see, right. you know, folk it kind of just kind of coming around saying, well, I know my kid that neither life really fits them, and I'm sad for that. Um, but uh, I, I, I wonder how parents kind of work through that. And I, I think it's interesting you mentioned your partner because I've heard that in other cases too. Your wife, excuse me. But you know, when, you, when your mother got to know her, how that played a role, and they start to see, oh, a my kid's picking out someone good to spend time with, and and yeah. b ah, it is coalescing. This is a family I understand. You know. Exactly. And a life that's, that's a lovely life, right? right? Whereas mm-hmm. I think even with my dad, the people that he, and they did, like my stepmother has a very good friend that was a gay couple, a gay man couple, and then my dad had this colleague who's a lesbian woman who was a partner, but they weren't out. Like it was a don't ask, don't tell era in a very extreme way. Mm-hmm. And so I think they thought by me being so out, particularly my dad, that I wouldn't have... I couldn't be successful, right? And this was the era, like, when you think about uh, there was anti-gay laws being passed. Yeah. And we made a very conscious decision to, to be in the Bay Area and to raise our kids here and to go through the Berkeley School. And even then, we were at the cutting edge. Um, so there were people around us 
who in an abstract way were very happy for us in our lives. But it still was the first time they were bumping into a two mom family. Sure, sure. Well and and trying to learn to talk about it in a way that, that felt respectful. Yeah. Well, we need to wrap up soon, but uh, kind of on a parting message, what what are you getting feedback specifically from young people uh, about your book, Living Right? And, you know, that that, you know, how what it means to them to be to see these issues dissected. And, you know, I, I could imagine some young person who's going through this or whether it's conversion therapy or just wondering whether they should come out to their religious parents, giving a copy of this book to their parents. Exactly. I'm very much hoping that when my um, editor turned down Living Right and said, you need to stick with historical fiction and this is not your next book, I was upset and it was hard for me to know, was she right or was she not right? But then I had this moment where I thought, this book might actually save someone's life. Mm -hmm. Reading this book for themselves or them handing this book to their parents or someone from Pete's flag handing this book to a parent might be the thing that helps them open up their understanding of God and open up their understanding of God's creation so that they can embrace their child fully. And I thought, well, I have to do it then, even if it's only good for one person. Um, the most wonderful letter that I've gotten so far is actually from my step-niece. One of my stepsisters is evangelical Christian and raised her children, you know, private school, just everything, everything, everything. And as I wrote it, I thought about their family a lot. And the daughter is 26 right now and has an 18 month old child and I was nervous when she saw on Facebook that I'd written this and she wanted to read it. <laughs> she wrote me and she just thanked me so much. She said this is such an important book and that that's just made the world so much to me. Well that's wonderful and I always have to ask an, an author who's just put out a book, what are you working on next? I am working on a sequel to Yellow Crocus mm -hmm. and so it's set in um, Virginia in 1868 so looking at the reconstruction period which I knew very little about and um, it's basically looking at the, the cross family dynamics that happened on the Civil War when you had people on two different sides of it and then I mean it's actually so frustrating and heartbreaking to read about basically the re-enslavement of blacks, yeah. um, slavery by another name, like all the laws that were put into place to continue to get free or reduced price labor after the Civil War. Well, we look forward to that. And and thank you so much for your, your work with uh, Living Right. Uh, her name is Lila Ibrahim, and you can find out more about her. Of course, she's on Facebook and at lilaibrahim.com. Thank you for joining us. And uh, the rest of you stay with us. We'll be right back after this commercial. The spotlight on success and achievement goes to LGBTQI members of the Bay Area who have demonstrated an incredible amount of success. We're very proud to announce that this month's Spotlight on Success and Achievement is Rick Welts. Well, it's been an unbelievable stretch of time, obviously. Uh, everything the Warriors have gone through this season, really a magical season that ended in a championship. Uh, and now to, to top it off a week later with the opportunity to participate in the Pride Parade in San Francisco, it's, uh, it's a pretty wonderful time. 
You know, it's been a journey, right? We're all on our own personal journeys, and uh, the last four years has been a remarkable part of my life, but it, it's definitely a part of my life. Uh, you know, the decisions I made four years ago to come out in the way that I did, obviously, you know, I had decided I was signing up for something going forward and being part of the discussion, uh, and, you know, I welcome that. And this is, uh, you know, for me, a real honor to, to be participating in this way, and. I guess in, in some ways it, it will be a demonstration of how far professional sports has come in, in a very short period of time, uh, not as far as our society has come, so I think we have a lot to celebrate. Wow, I, I don't think I have any secrets. I don't think I'm that mysterious. You know, I've got a uh, pretty simple life. I like pretty simple things. Uh, you know, I've, I've got a great partner. His name's Todd Gage. Uh, he has two wonderful children, a 14-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy. I, I uh, got off the parade route, got into a car with them. We drove to Lake Tahoe, and I got to watch 14-year-old girls play four soccer games over the course of the weekend and then drive back to the Bay Area. So that's my idea of an exciting weekend, you know, spending it with the kids and my partner and getting to do, you know, the most basic things that any family would get to do. Spotlight on success and achievement presented by Wells Fargo. Together we'll go far. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome to the Michelle Meow Show. I'm John Zipperer sitting in today for Michelle Meow, who's been called away on some important SF Pride news. So I'm sure you all hear about that uh, and uh, look forward to further developments as SF Pride uh, approaches us in June. Today, we, uh, well, we began by talking with Lila Ibrahim, author of Living Right, a, a fascinating new novel about uh, families coming to terms with uh, LGBTQ children, uh, dealing with conversion therapy, uh, faith, how faith informs their reaction to this issue, and uh, uh, what they hope to change in their, or what needs to be changed in the people and their faith. It's, it's a great topic. We're actually going to go even further with this now. We have on the line the Reverend Elizabeth Edmond. She's the author of a new book called Queer Virtue, What LGBTQ People Know About Life and Love and How It Can Revitalize Christianity. Reverend Edmond, welcome to the Michelle Miao Show. Thanks, John. I'm thrilled to death to be talking with you. Well, we're glad you're here. Um, and literally, this book goes on sale today. Is that right? Today is its on-sale date, exactly. <laughs> well, congratulations. I know putting out a book is, is a huge endeavor what what made you uh, want to write this book and and with this message? I you know I I, um, I have two careers. I'm an Episcopal priest and I am also a political strategist. And in my political career, I've done a lot of work on uh, uh, LGBTQ justice issues. I've worked on marriage and all kinds of things. And I've no, and I've known for 
years that, you know, the biggest drag on our movement continues to be appeals to uh, homophobic interpretations of religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it hurts our movement, and it also hurts us. You know, there's just terrible wounds that have been inflicted on queer people in the name of religion. So I've been paying attention to that. Um, and as a priest, I've also been somewhat frustrated that very often in progressive Christianity, our proclamation of the gospel is can be uh, a bit tepid, um, and I think sometimes that you know that uh, 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 plays a role in uh, uh, people being able to misuse religion, in a, you know, to, to queer bash. So I just paid attention uh, to, to those two things, and it occurred to me quite some time ago, that a more robust proclamation of the Christian gospel would be good for the Church and good for the queers, right? So that's part of what this book is. Um, and then uh, something else that I've observed over the years is that very often when I am uh, writing a sermon, let's say, you know, if I'm working with a passage of Scripture, and all of a sudden I find myself thinking about something I've experienced as a lesbian, you know, and I'll think, oh, God, I understand exactly what Jesus is saying here, because that's what, this is what what queer people have to do all the time. And that happens, John, just constantly. And what I began to see is that there is real resonance between queer experience and the path that Christians are called to walk. So this book is an effort to name what that resonance is, um, and then and then you know hopefully do do something uh, to address uh, these uh, appeals to religion that that have continued to harm our movement. People. Yeah, well that's interesting because a lot of folks find you know or even even Christians who might be sympathetic to the LGBTQ people and and the movement still kind of think oh well the solution lies in a less Christian Christianity, and you're basically saying the medicine for homophobic Christianity is more Christianity, right? It's more focused on what Jesus really said. You know, that, 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 that's exactly right. Um, you know, I, I had sort of this, uh, this, this interesting moment in writing the book. I had done my first draft, and I sent it off to Beacon Press, and my editors got back in touch with me, and they said, Liz, you need, a, you need a, an opening chapter that creates a narrative arc for the entire book, and specifically this chapter needs to explain what you mean when you say authentic Christianity is and must be queer. Mm-hmm. So I sit down to write this to write this chapter, and you know, so often people are thinking, okay, what, what, where in the Bible, what talks about queerness? You know, what, what, what a lot of people immediately think of are the clutter passages, you know, and we've spent uh, so much energy trying to refute this handful of obscure passages. Yeah. Uh, well, so I'm thinking to myself, okay, so where do I see the queerness in the, in the tradition? And, and I find my gaze directed immediately to Mary Magdalene standing at the at the empty tomb, you know. So where I see queerness in our tradition is are, are in the most pivotal moments, not these obscure passages, but the most pivotal moments in the in the tradition. Um, well, okay, explain the Mary Magdalene uh, element because I don't think most people would would. Okay, how does that how is that a queer moment, or what's the queer lesson from that? Well, so okay, so you know, so so Jesus has just been brutally murdered, 
and and they, they take his body and they and they put it into this tomb. And and that morning, that you know, early early morning, Mary goes to this place, and it's kind of a garden, and it's kind of a cemetery, and it's not even it, the sun is not even risen yet, so it's you know super dark and super quiet, right? And she's looking around for this for this tomb, and she has come to grieve, right? So she's looking and she's looking, and it's just, you know, it's disorienting in that way that, you know, those pre-dawn moments, disorienting, and the light is changing, and right? And as I read the story, what's crystal clear to me is that there's a reason that the first human encounter of the resurrection takes place in this liminal moment, because you have to open your eyes as wide as they can go, just to, just to be able to see what's happening. And you can kind of imagine Mary just trying to find the tomb, and, and she finds this empty cave, and she's looking around, and she's like, wait, wait, is this even the right place? You know, it's confusing, it's disorienting. Um, that's queer. I mean, that's so queer. You know, just that having to... Oh, you know, stand in this place where everything's shifting. You know, the, the stuff that you kind of want to hold on to in, your, in the glaring light of conventional midday, you don't have that. Mm-hmm. It's an incredibly queer moment. Well, you, you now you actually uh, begin the introduction of the book. The first words are, I am a queer priest. Why start with that? I... Uh, uh, it, it just does not seem like a random sentence to begin with. So, I mean, you, you, you know, <laughs> the import of that, I think, is quite strong. I, uh, uh, thank you. I um, uh, originally didn't, I didn't, didn't intend to write a book. I, I intended to start a movement. I'm a, I'm a political organizer, and I intended to start, a, I don't know, a church or a movement or, or something. And, uh, and I found when I would sit down with people, I would kind of explain this, Queer stuff, and it just was so hard to explain and to start all over again. So I thought, let's just write it down, write the vision, make a plan so that a runner can see it. Is what the letter to the Hebrews says. So I go to this coffee shop. I live in New York, and I go to this coffee shop uptown, and I sit down with my laptop, and I'm like, well, now where do you even start, right? And and that's just what came out. I'm a queer priest, and the reason that I start there is because these two parts of my identity are so intertwined. And I think that's what, you know, when you, when you were talking a second ago about people thinking that, that we need to kind of pull out of Christianity, my experience inside of myself is that my, my identity as a queer person and my identity as priest are so interconnected. You know, they inform each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as I sat down to think, how on earth do I tell this the story of the interconnections between queerness and Christianity, I thought, well, they're inside of me, you know? So, so that's where the book starts. Um, trying to take that apart. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how did, now, when did you become a, 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 an Episcopal priest before you came out? Well, after did, did the seminary know, or, or I mean, how, how did that come about? And, and what were the uh, issues involved with the organization? Because the Episcopal church, like, you know, every other of the mainline churches has been evolving on this issue, as we say in this country nowadays. Yes, no, no, that's that, that, that's absolutely right. And uh, and and I and I'm not you know young and strapping as I as I once was. I, <laughs> I'm really really uh, 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 lucky because uh, I went to Union Seminary here in New York sure. uh, and started seminary in 1988. 
Um, I had come to New York just a couple of years earlier from, from college, and uh, uh, and I was already out. I was already out of out of the closet mm-hmm. at, at at that point. Well, Union is this place where the ethic is liberation theology, mm-hmm. and even as far back as 1988, Union was already doing. We, we weren't calling it queer theology then, but Union was already doing this. So I was able to land at Union and be totally out. It was an incredibly important spiritual home for me. Mm-hmm. Um, now, my experience within the Episcopal Church wasn't quite quite as easy as that. I've, I have I, I came of age as the Church has uh, grappled and grappled and grappled uh, with question about ordination of. of uh, Mostly lesbians and gay men is how how that's played out uh, uh, throughout my life. Now, thankfully, um, we're paying more attention to, to bisexual people, to transgender people. Um, uh, but my ordination process has taken a long time. It took me 18 years to get ordained from the moment that I started seminary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and were you always religious? Did you always have faith? And did the, did that change over time? Generally, it does with folks, you know, whether it's a... Uh, in movement from unbelief to belief or shift within a belief uh, framework it's 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 always been it's always been in me my oh. both my parents are are, are people of, of, of great of great faith and uh, and I was lucky because because my parents joined the Episcopal Church um, before I was born and the Episcopal Church you know even though it's grappled with this particular issue you know it's very uh, the, the the liturgy is very focused on sacrament and on and on being together less on the kind of proclamation that very often in evangelical circles has allowed people to, to misuse these clobber passages mm-hmm. um, uh, so and it and it's very queer. It's very sensual that that experience. Um, so it just it always spoke to me. <laughs> um, okay, so let's bring you back up today. Tell us a bit about what you're doing today. I mean, are, obviously there are, are multiple roles for priests. You said you're you're a political organizer. Is that your primary uh, role, or do you do you also serve in a church, or, or what, what is your uh, your vocation? I guess within the church. I'm. Right now, my my day job is in politics. I work for the New York State Controller, um, and I but I do preaching uh, on the side, mm-hmm. basically. And I've got a, a, a couple of parishes that I where I show up, and I go in for the priest, and I preach. My uh, altar home, I like to call it, is at this wonderful church in South Orange, New Jersey, St. Andrew, and, and Holy Communion. Um, but honestly, what I've been doing as a priest for the past couple three years is Mostly writing this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we, we have the fruits of your labor now out on sale this, today. Uh, it's called Queer Virtue, What LGBTQ People Know About Life and Love and How It Can Revitalize Christianity. Um, Reverend uh, Edmund, we are going to take a, a quick commercial break. You can stay with us. Uh, absolutely. Great. We'll be right back on the Michelle Meow Show. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. 
So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome to the Michelle Meow Show. We are uh, live today with uh, Reverend Elizabeth M. Edmond. She's the author of the new book, Queer Virtue, What LGBTQ People Know About Life and Love and How It Can Revitalize Christianity. I'm John Zipperer from the Commonwealth Club, sitting in for the great Michelle Meow. Uh, Reverend Edmond, um, so... Who is the audience for this book? Is it religious people? Is it seekers? Is it uh, specifically LGBTQ people who are either in or outside the church? Or I mean, who, who are you trying? To, who do you think this message? Uh, who did you have in mind? I guess when you while you were writing this as your audience. I have I have two uh, uh, primary audiences mm -hmm. in mind. Um, one is uh, LGBTQ people, um, particularly LGBTQ Christians, but really all of us across the board. Uh, 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 all of us have been burned by by hateful proclamations in the name of religion. All of us on our bodies and on our souls, the scars of that. And this book is, a, an essential premise of this book is that, is that queer experience demands a response of high moral caliber. And uh, so as a priest, I, you know, I want to bind up some of the wounds of my, of my people. Um, that's the primary audience uh, for the book. I also have this other this other goal, which is to uh, uh, you know give a give an injection of energy into the progressive Christian movement, uh, and it breaks down into a couple of ways. One is that I think an appreciation for queerness, for the queerness of the Christian tradition, um, can give Christians uh, something to proclaim with boldness and power and energy. Um, uh, really. They help the, the progressive church. Um, and similarly, uh, I, I want to offer something to folks who uh, know in their hearts that there is something really wrong with um, appeals to religion as a form of queer bashing, uh, and, you know, and help people to ease that, that dissonance um, and be able to proclaim their faith boldly 
without feeling like, ah, is this, you know, I don't know if this is right. But so it's two audiences there. Sure, and actually giving them fuel for their discussions with other people so they can explain stuff that they might feel but not know, and you can you actually lay it out right here in the, in the book. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, the, 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 the essence of what I see in Christianity that is, that is queer is I, here, here I, I, I draw, this is not so much about sexual queerness. This is about what happens in queer theory, you know, which is all about rupturing false binaries, right? Queer theory historically ruptures the binary between male and female as definitive poles. Um, and what I see going on in Christianity is this impulse to rupture false binaries relentlessly. So we've got, for instance, Jesus in his person rupturing a false binary between human and divine. Yes. Jesus ruptures binary, a binary between sacred and profane. And every time he's out there talking to somebody about who is my neighbor, he's rupturing this impulse to like create categories of us and us. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Paul, you know, a lot of people misunderstand Paul, and Paul talks about rupturing uh, the binary between Jew and Greek, slave and free, and male and female. So there's this impulse within the Christian tradition, and it's not a marginal impulse. It's the essential movement of the faith. Uh, and it's, to me, on its face, it is inherently queer which is why I see an ethical path uh, that queer experience demands, which is ex- precisely resonant with the, with the path that Christian ethics demand. Yeah. So I'm kind of there. I, I, I really agree with, I mean, the, the idea that I think so many folks look, both within and without of the church, look at it and probably all most organized religions, if not all, as being really pillars of, conservatism here's mm-hmm. the here's the the revealed truth believe it or you're, you're an infidel of some sort um and what really gets lost is like you've been saying how radical really christianity is because it really says i mean and, and so many of those friends and all the breaking those binaries that you mentioned uh in, in addition to you know its message is there's no difference in God's eye between the person who's sleeping under the bridge and the person who's in the White House or the person who is heading up a multi-billion dollar corporation. Um, you know, the value is, is there. That's an incredibly radical thing today as much as it would have been in, you know, 2016 years ago. Yeah, that, 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 that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I was looking at, uh, at Michelle's website, you know, mm-hmm. and she has this uh, terrific line where she says, um, uh, why can't we learn to love and accept one another for our differences and our similarities? You know, it, it's kind of a brilliant thing to recognize, just to be able to say, yeah, there are ways in which we're different from each other, and there are ways in which we have, co- you know, we have these commonalities as well. And authentic Christianity, to me, can hold both of those. That's what happens when you rupture false categories of self and other. You can begin to talk openly about, okay, this is who I am, and that makes me different from you, you know? Mm-hmm. And this is but it's that, that where there are commonalities between between the two of us. So often, uh, the more conservative iterations of religion, you know, that want concrete answers constantly. I need to understand what category I belong to that pits me against people who belong to a different kind of category. Um, and it's just not it's just not true to 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 the essential thrust of the Christian faith, which. Uh, 
you're saying, you know, just demands this sense uh, that, uh, uh, you know, not that we're not different from each other, but that uh, um, that we're not pitted against each other because yeah. of our differences. Yeah. Um, I have to admit, when I, I first, uh, actually, just before I moved to New York uh, for a while in the, uh, I guess, the beginning of the century, I got together with some friends, and we went to see a play called Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> that caught my eye, and in a chapter of yours called Pride, you uh, use it as an example. Could, could you go into that? What, what, what were you trying to show with that, as well as the whole point of that chapter on, on uh, what it means and why it's important uh, as a community issue? I love I, I just, I love Hedwig so much. <laughs> um, just so much, right? So you've got, you know, so, so, so Hedwig uh, uh, represents um, this, stands in the middle of a divide between male and female, mm-hmm. right? And Hedwig herself is quick to point out that, you know, that maybe she's a wall between these two, but she's also a bridge, you know, and a wall and a bridge, they're kind of sides of the same thing because they, because you can, you know, you can use them to, to create these separations or you can use them to see the connections that exist, yeah. exist between the, between the two of them. And she herself has been through, oh my God, what it's an unbelievable journey. And she's searching for her other half, right? Like coming from this premise that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm broken now and I've got to find this other person to match me and make me whole. And and the and the show really is this long journey that she makes to try to come to understand that uh, uh, that she's not going to find her answer in 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 somebody else in that way. There's, there's not like a magic formula that she's going to run across somebody and then suddenly be 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 healed. And she does this extraordinary thing at the at the end of the show and she really begins really comes to grips with she she has got to value herself mm-hmm. she, you know she has she just has to do that to me that is the you know that that's what that's the essence of pride is coming to the place to be able to say you know i i have strengths and i have gifts and yes i'm hurt and i've been wounded and i bear those scars right but you know, but but really to value herself, and she does this uh, this amazing thing, um, where she names these provocative musicians and then names herself in the in the midst of them. You know, and that's the way that we that that, that we are able to find a wholeness with others. You know, is in is in community, and that's what pride makes possible: is this ability to stand with community. And then she calls us all to lift up our hands, you know, together. And I've seen the show numerous times and you just watch people as soon as she calls it out, you know, lift up your hands and the hands go up. Uh-huh. And it's us, you know, exchanging this energy of you know, it's a kind of rapture that that, that takes place. Not saying we're not wounded anymore, but recognizing that there is such power um, in the in the affirmation that we can give each well, other. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. Uh, everybody, the book is Queer Virtue, What LGBTQ People Know About Life and Love and How It Can Revitalize Christianity. It's on sale today. The author is the Reverend Elizabeth Edmond, who is joining us today on the radio. Thank you very much, Reverend Edmond. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much, John. Thank you. And everybody, thank you for joining us for the Michelle Miao Show. I'm John Zipper sitting in. For Michelle, you can find out more at michellemeow.com.